What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode eight. We're joined today by the founder of Industry Marketing, Nigel Despinas. Nigel and I both contribute to Fat Nugs Magazine, which you can learn more about at fatnugmag.com, and we write cultivation guides for ilovegrowingmarijuana.com. Uh, he's got a great background in cannabis and a good perspective on the industry. Enjoy the show. It's good to Thank connect you. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I really do. I I feel like the big buzzword over the last year and some change has been like personal branding and everything. So I just really love cannabis in our industry. And so somebody was just like, start posting everything that you think. And like, I definitely don't do that, but it comes close. Yeah, there's still some some restrictions there. Not exactly there posting be. everything you think. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> there has to be some restriction. Yeah, dude, so how did you find your way into the cannabis industry? Could you give us a little breakdown of your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my journey in the industry started, I wanna say around 2017. Um, was attending Brown University as a freshman, kind of went through my freshman year and took courses in everything um, from religious studies to biotechnology to, to physics, etc. So like very, Brown has a very weird curriculum setup. Anyway, I, I was in class with these kids who had a very firm understanding of what they wanted to achieve or what they wanted to become, whether it was doctors, lawyers, physicist, etc. Um, and I didn't have that same understanding. I knew I liked plant medicine. That was something that I was really interested in. Um, and I, I had been on and off smoking since middle school. Um, and it was something that my friends and I had like had as a, a communal uh, ceremony, essentially. Um, something that brought us together closer. But that ritual. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, it was definitely like a, a group coming together as one type deal. Um, but I ended up meeting Nadir Pearson, um, who he does business development at WiseCo right now. Great individual. Um, he came to me and was like, there's a whole industry emerging off of this. And this was, you know, Colorado. I went wreck at this time. We were still very early stage Um there's an industry, but it's not like, you know, the 19 states that we have that are out now. Um, and he kind of approached me with this idea of like, let's do a club that focuses on destigmatizing cannabis, educating people about what the plant actually is, uh, and kind of the business structures that are around legalization. Uh, and so, you know, th we started with that and it kind of snowballed. That's just the beginning of the story, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, and there's definitely a hell of a stigma to remove. Um, what years were you in, at school at Brown? 2016 to 2020. Yeah. So okay. Oh, so the industry recent. was, yeah, the industry was a little bit evolved in some states, but it's exploded since 2016 for sure. Exactly. It was, it was like right before the roller coaster really started. 
you know, it was like I said, people rolling out their med programs. Colorado was rec, California, Oregon. And and like, you know, the, the concept of rec weed at the time just was like blowing people's minds where like, it was solely a California thing, but then you had Colorado come into the mix and that was like always the biggest uh, bragging rights thing whenever people, I'm from Louisiana, right? So whenever people came in, they'd be like, I got stuff from Colorado. It was great. Um, but yeah, very early stage cannabis, which, you know, everyone started using that green rush term. Right. People started seeing the industry as a, as a potential and, and did some businesses just explode exponentially for better or worse, right? Some are still here today. Others maybe were a little overzealous exactly. or only seeing green. Yeah, exactly. It was like, a, a, you know, you always see those, uh, those charts about how markets perform and there's always like that little bump. And that's like when everyone has like that initial mania of like, we're going to the moon. And like, you know, some people really invested in the future and some people just were like, this is all it's ever going to be is going up. And, you know, we've clearly seen how that's paid out over the last year. Oh yeah, in our modern times of mergers and acquisitions, everybody's buying each other and trying to buy doors instead of build better things, exactly. which has diminishing returns. Exactly. <laughs> People are kind of learning that like the be everywhere all the time is not the best business method. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a on the product management side, there's this theory that you really have to focus on a narrow very narrow niche and kind of know what you're doing because it's too easy to get spread out and waste time on all the things you could be doing. Mm -hmm. I think that's something to be taken to heart there. Some cannabis businesses came out trying to be full vertical, multiple States. Uh, you know, it's, it gets difficult. And you have like the whole interweaving craziness of, of different regulations embodying different governments and different States. Oh yeah. And yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes it can be a nightmare to deal with. And I really Are you very do familiar like with the metric and biotrack layout. Some I'm more familiar with side. metric than biotrack. Um, I, I'm like, or I, it's like a, I, I haven't worked within metric. I was in Oklahoma pre metric and Rhode Island when I was growing had a, kind of a, a state run trace system, which like we can get into that. That's like its own BS, but. Yeah, so state-run systems, they tread that line between BS. Uh, it's hard to see, or it's easy to see, I should say, how little folks knew about cannabis when they made those laws or, or that litigation or the API for metric. Uh, no offense to metric if you're listening. Actually, I don't think you are. But, bro, update your API. It, it's for brutal. Real. And it's really confusing for operators sometimes to get used to metric. Um, And on the same side, Biotrack's not a perfect beast. Uh, There's a lot of corners that were cut because they were state contracts, where if you were building an application in general, you would provide a good experience. But if you're building an application with a state contract, you will hit the contractual obligations and and move on. (laughs) And that's been like the big issue with with metric and and like I say, you know, most of my experience for metric is is anecdotal from other people, but that paints a pretty good picture as to what I understand its shortcomings as. And it's like you said, it's like if you have there's a lot of seed to sale companies that are on the market now, and almost all of them who are not tied up in these government contracts 
are always wanting feedback. They're always wanting to improve their systems. They're always wanting to know what's uh, a better way to work within that system, uh, keeping totally. compliance cool, essentially. And yeah, it can be a nightmare if you let it go off the, off the rails, especially if you haven't been labeling plants and then you harvested them. According to the state, that never happened. You have to go back and uh, start doing retroactive things. Uh, one of the weirdest uh, corners I saw cut is that Biotrack state software, if you want to print 100 plant tags, you have to click each tag, say print, okay, 100 times. There's no multi-select or way to print your whole room of plants. So I had a client that had about 800 plants in New Mexico, and we were trying to come up with a solution for them, and I, I didn't quite see that to the finish line, but you can imagine how time-consuming it would be Yes. to sit there all evening just to print your prop room absolutely and then that tomorrow is veg <laughs> it's a it's a battle yeah man and and especially you know and that's like not even broaching the environmental issues with having a million tags that you can't reuse or anything like that oh true man yeah the with metric making folks buy those tags it kind of encourages maybe questionable tracking practices because you're, you don't want to use it. If every tag costs, you know, 50 cents a dollar, you know, realizing you might be able to like extract flour, run winterization, do some other things, then put a package tag on it. Like that kind of doesn't let you track every stage of production as well. But according to the state, you're good, (laughs) which is kind of where business lies right now. Yeah. And, you know, you already have taxes that are crushing cultivators. You have uh, inclement market conditions to where everything is just biomass at this point. And then on top of that, you want to add inefficient practices for how to track your plants and everything. You're almost asking for like these metric magicians who come and figure out a way to make pounds disappear off the books. Like you're, you're asking for that illicit market within the regulated market to exist. Yeah. Problems arise the one good thing biotrack does is that they assign an id that you don't have to buy tags from them so that does help i think because you basically make a call to them and they say all right here's your tag number 67 which saves some time and that extra purchase step that environmental concern some of that plays in so for your um for your your issue that you were having where it was the 800 plants. Is that like in a situation you could talk to Biotrack and essentially be like, hey, I have 800 plants, can you assign 800 tags? And they just give you a spreadsheet with all those? Yeah, the crazy thing is they already had the tag. We just needed to print them. So I talked with Biotrack and asked if they could you know, allow a multi-select or let us print more than one tag. And they said that, yeah, we offer that feature if you buy Biotrack software. So if you're using the state-mandated software, they purposefully keep out those ease-of-use features into buying. So we set up a pretty fun solution. And I don't know if you have any background in PC gaming. but you can. Um, s- I've done League. I've played League a couple times. Okay, so. you might have seen it then. You can set up these macros with a mouse clicks so that like the mouse clicks in a certain point and then moves and clicks there. And we actually solved the problem by just setting up this crazy macro and just printing. Yep. I get it. That was going to be my initial thought was like, (laughs) it almost seems 
more efficient for you to build a bot that does the clicking as opposed to you manually doing this. Yes. Yeah. As much as we want the compliance software to improve, there's only so much consultants can do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on the, on the day job, man, on, on your BDSA role, are you working on any specific accounts or any specific pieces of that solution offering? I know they have a quite of an um, umbrella of analytics. It's insane, man. I, I sadly can't speak to who we work with. Um, just be, you know, the people don't want to be put on blast and such. Um, but I can speak to how crazy it is as a market nerd, a weed market nerd, more specifically, like having access to a treasure trove of data from a retail perspective, from a wholesale perspective, understanding what markets are forecasted to be like from a state level and a national and a, a international level in the next five years. Um, it's just been really cool to go through. And Giving you the eye in the sky. Exactly. So it is retail and wholesale? Yeah, and the, the wholesale is, they're like sharpening it as it goes, but you get a good understanding in a couple different states of what those wholesale markets are like, what the highs, the lows, the medians are. Um, but like the, the coolest thing to me has been the, the market forecast where you can see kind of things out on a five-year scale, it tells you what the expectation is for, you know, when we expect Germany to legalize recreationally or, uh, you know, the state of affairs in Malta right now, or, uh, you know, anywhere in Europe, essentially. And then they have Australia too. Uh, that's been cool to watch. And then understanding I'll dive into a market within, you know, Arizona and see kind of at a retail level, what products are moving and, uh, what brands are, are kind of pushing the market forward. It's just, uh, it's insane. I like didn't even know that we had this type of info. Yeah, man, the, the, Data set has got to be enormous. Huge. Uh, I started in software as a SQL programmer, writing like database queries and stored procedures. Yep. So that's definitely a SQL database I'd love to query someday. It's, it's <laughs> insane, man. And the, Does BDSA gather the data f from the, the applications, or do you have to export data to then get into the BDSA system? So we essentially have a panel of uh, different dispensaries that will um, be a percentage of the market and then we'll project out to the full market size whenever a state releases that size of industry report. Um, oh, so okay. getting a, you, you get an understanding of what's selling and then we project that out to kind of what that full size market is, um, which is, awesome. yeah, it, it's, it's wild. Dude, that level of forecasting and planning is something that legacy ERPs have rolled in. You know, with Microsoft Dynamics, with Business Central, SAP Business One, you can run manufacturing and shops, and it's gathering all of this data. You can budget, forecast, plan. I think those those features are really some of the missing pieces in seed to sale. And that's the that's like the and you can you can speak to this as well that's like the age-old issue that i think we all run into is there's a bunch of new things being built within cannabis that already have an existence within like the normal world so to speak or within normal realms of business but they have to be built within cannabis because one companies are too afraid to touch things that are illegal which you know 
is, has its good and bad parts, right? And then you also have the the aspect of it where um, there's certain nuances that exist, like a, a, a Uber Eats or a DoorDash couldn't really pick up delivery right now for cannabis programs because there's licensing that's involved in that and everything. But it also creates these inefficiencies because we have small teams working on big projects that affect the entire industry. And so it's kind of difficult to that's feel a good way to sum it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's, it's only gotten weird smaller. That, that there's like cannabis specific payroll, cannabis HR companies, cannabis task management, supply chain, cultivation, wholesale. But then you step back and it, ERPs started in the 70s as MRPs and have been running the world around us our whole lives. Like the supply chain, the way we fill stores and forecast sales all that technology is there. It's more of getting the cannabis industry to, I think, mature enough to start capitalizing on it. There was definitely a stage where we were in this very like caveman era. In my first legal grow that I worked at, our plant nutrients, our like fertigation recipes were on a whiteboard and our harvests were on painter's tape with Sharpies. And you know, if you get water on painter's tape, it's gone. So sometimes we would dub new strains or just guess how far along veg things really were. Um, one of the guys leaned against that fertigation recipe, just talking with folks, and took the bottom half away. So we just redid it. <laughs> no one knew it at that time. And it's crazy to see the Wild West that it's evolved from. I think you've, you were early on in Oklahoma, you said. Uh, how was that experience when it comes to the wild west you know i'm gonna throw it out the disclaimer all love to all people growing out in oklahoma you guys are doing a really hard job right now and things are crazy out there um they really are now to speak my heart on it it was an absolute shit show man it was it was <laughs> it was an unregulated yeah. minefield when i was out there and a lot of things have changed right many many things have changed and i've worked with a lot of people who are out in that market um, more recently, and it seems like things have kind of gotten together. Um, but I started off out there doing harvesting and trimming, started a company with one of my friends, and we were out in Tulsa. Um, you know, be careful with friends that you go into business with. Things went left, we split. I did my own thing for a little while. One of our clients ended up uh, appreciating the level of detail that we did our work. So they brought us in as growers. Um, and so I worked out there a little bit. Nice. Okay. Yeah, man, there's nothing that starts a cannabis career better than hours and hours spent trimming over a bin. If you, <laughs> if you make it out of the trimming stage and still love cannabis, you're meant to be here. There's like no doubt in my mind. <laughs> the only thing after that is probably up potting, like one, ones to threes. Yes. Imagine doing that for half your day and uh, you're pretty spot on with what cultivation is. And that's literally it, man. It's like, you know, cutting clones, uh, transplanting, waterings, and then cleaning up. Yeah, I was going to say, cleaning is just, I was surprised at how many times I mopped the floor and cleaned the lights and the walls and the trays. And, and it was like a mix between like a home cleaner or like school janitor and construction worker exactly. inside limited confines. Exactly. And it's really like a a karate kid, Mr. Miyagi type experience because like 
you're washing every day or you're you're mopping the floor every day and then like pieces come together and you're like not that this directly relates to mopping but like you see leaves yellowing and you're like you need to get a little bit more nitrogen in there or like you have a you start to it's like a um it's like in the hangover when zach alfnax had all the numbers running behind him in his head it's like pieces come together as you just spend time in a grow and watch people work and kind of get game and soak it up from other people um totally but really it's like a game of patience and sterility like being as clean as possible and i think that facilities in general are better at that sometimes now than they were before uh when i was cultivating we didn't have to it wasn't to the scrub stage yet folks were just walking in with their shoes off the street uh it was a it was a mess man (laughs) and that's how it is man you know like i i had like a flip-flopped experience from in rhode island i was working in a a 10,000 square foot facility shout out to the good people at bonsai buds you guys taught me literally everything i know about growing this plant um that was and that's like you know a little bit later in the college journey but um that was, was a little more professional or a little more pharmaceutical perhaps in that approach. And, and they just had this like meticulous love for their plants. And like, you know, we, we caught PM over two of our flower rooms and just had to essentially just toss out just like so many plants. And, you know, you're just learning how to grow and you're just sitting here and your heart's hurting because these babies that you've brought up from seedlings are out and um but they did the right thing you know which i respect you got to cut the roster when they're not performing yeah exactly (laughs) and you know did you ever see any crazy methods trying to save a plant from pm or spider mites or anything and that's like that goes back to the the oklahoma journey right that was the ultimate reason i ended up style that was the ultimate reason i ended up leaving was because i got those standards and practices taught to me in rhode island And like, these were from people who like, you know, at the risk of sounding like a giant hippie right now, just really love the plant, you know, like you could feel when you smoke this product that people cared about it when they cultivated it, which like, I was so happy to be a part of a team on that. Um, But then you go, and then I went to Oklahoma and the facility that they had was a a car, uh, like a an auto shop that was turned into a, which, you know, you know, facility design is a major, exactly. (laughs) Facility design is such a crucial part of growing cannabis. And once you have like a, a facility who like innately has uh, a messed up structure, your harvest, like you're not going to get any better with growing because you're always going to hit that wall with these things. So yeah, we had mites. That limiting factor. Exactly. We had mites, we had PM, uh, we had thrips. It just was like, it was coming down. Exactly. <laughs> Murphy's and, you know, law in the cultivation world. Exactly. And, <laughs> and you understand, man, like, like Murphy's law is the ultimate governing factor within a cultivation site. Like if it can happen, it is going to happen, you know? Yeah. The biggest, the biggest example of that, I think is we had spent all this time cleaning the room, building a new fertigation system that we kind of cobbled together with piping and some pumps and giant barrels we could roll around. It was all pretty fresh. We watered two days and I came in the morning and about a quarter of our AC units fell into the garden. So the fertigation stuff we set up didn't even matter. (laughs) It was just that room was done. Yeah, I was about to say at that point, there's like no saving this, you know? And Uh, it's crazy. 
I'm sure there were still weeks to go on it still, you know? Oh yeah. That's uh, some weird occurrences there. Or you're going to, at least in my day, you know, we had to clean the glass panels and put them back up in the lights when it was like HPS lights. Yep. Um, just because the, the lumens would be diminished by a dirty glass. For sure. Diminished that, like, probably barely, but these guys were trying to cut all the corners and optimize. So we were cleaning and sometimes I'd go to put that up and like bend it a little bit and that thing would just shatter, you know, down into plants. It was a, it was a wild experience, man. Same grow I was in. We had a crazy spider mite infestation. And the first attempt was to just try to shop back the spider mites <laughs> off the plant. <laughs> you can imagine that didn't work very well. This is, these are like, these are like the hilarious stories that I feel like need to be kept alive because as we move into this like future of cannabis, it's going to be like, like rolling over here in those stories. Exactly. Which like, you know, people are just trying to do what they can to get their, their product right, which I get. Um, Yeah. I mean, in comparison, you know, I've implemented some software for grows that are million plus square feet where nobody goes in the growing chambers and it's automated, you know, they're pulling out trays. It's completely pristine. The industry has figured it out for the most part. Um, just some of the businesses had to start and get over some rocky times. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking what do you could, would you be down to say also before, before you even drop names, sponsor this podcast and, and get more brand recognition on here. But could you say who those systems were? Uh, they were all Canadian. Okay. The only one I think I'm out of NDA on is Afria. Okay. And that's yeah, uh, yeah. up in, in Ontario. So I got to go out to their grow for some time. They were implementing 365. Okay. And we got to work with the teams and really understand their whole workflow. And even having that background from a 40,000 square foot warehouse, there was only so much I could relate to 1.2 million. I don't even know it's how, unreal. man. That's that's like <laughs> that's like the the same, and it, you know, it's all those Canadian LPs who have these like crazy footprints because like the Aurora oh, yeah. Sky facility is another one that was like like I think one point four million square feet, and like kudos to you for you know attacking that head on because that is paralyzingly terrifying. They're beasts, man. This Afria one that I was at had converted from a tomato grow or tomato greenhouse. So it was actually based in the tomato capital of Canada by the Heinz Ketchup Factory. <laughs> so easy, easy transport. Yeah, right. You're going to have the uh, Heinz yeah, Wax Canada Factory was next. Exactly. Heinz Concentrates. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Infused ketchup, man. I take them up on that. That uh, Kiva just released an infused ketchup. Yeah, I saw that, dude. I think I can dig that. Or some hot sauce, maybe. Agreed. There's saucy if you've heard of them. There's like, yeah, I've got to, I've got to stop shouting out brands on this. I put brand placement. Somebody sponsor this, uh, this podcast. For sure. Right. We'll get, we'll get some of these brands on too and learn more about them. Love that. There's so much being done in the, in the industry, trying to use the product differently, you know, extracting, putting it in something else, edibles, tinctures, topicals. Mm -hmm. What do you think about just longer cured flour? You know, it seems that it's like a, it's so obvious that you could cure longer, but just the market pressures cause it to be cured seven days when it Which could is go ironic. 30. It's super <laughs> ironic in my mind that that exists because 
you know, I'm not sure how it is in Nevada, but you know, I'm in DC right now. So if you go and buy flour, the manufacturing date was literally a year ago. So if you, you know, they have the time to cure it, you know, it's, I mean, right. it's sure going to sit on the shelf. Exactly. So <laughs> my mind it's probably honestly, doing some of that cure while it sits, but not, it's not as good if you can't burp it and, and give it that time to mature. Yeah. And I think that's something that's been like a very, you know, you can speak to this too. The, the importance of drying and curing, not that it was diminished by any means before, but now I feel like people are really understanding how much of a science it really comes down to when it comes to solidifying these terps and these flavonoids and, and uh, these cannabinoids and like having them reach like a full level of maturity before going into packaging and going out. Yeah, right. Just letting those psychoactive compounds really reach their peak before you lab test, you know, before you package and ship it out. There's a lot of products on the shelf that probably don't meet their label because a lot of the cannabinoids switched over to CBN with the longer life cycle that you're going to get a more sedative experience no matter what it says. Exactly. The industry's a little bumpy there. And that's... I had a master grower that would cure some plants. He would grow once a year outdoors, cure about six months, and keep that like tightly jarred and in a dark space. And every once in a while, he'd break it out for us to smoke if it was like a big harvest or we had some kind of celebration. I love and that. And I've got to say that long cure, man, it was... It's beautiful. It really gives a plant some time to come into its own. And you tell me, was because I haven't had a flower that's been cured very long. I've had the great fortune of having some aged hash, some like old school Temple Ball aged hash, you know. And you know that's tasty. been y'all oh, so tasty, man. And I like I, I won't like go into a tirade of it, but like that's kind of become my newfound micro passion within cannabis. I've just like loved learning about hash history. There's a lot of uh, like ancient history with like hash and uh, the cultures that would burn it for rituals and all kinds of stuff involved there. Absolutely. With still some ancient practices happening with like dry sift in Morocco and just, it's, and it's pretty wild to see. And it's crazy whenever you, you know, you've probably seen the videos. There's some really cool, uh, Instagram pages that people should check out of individuals who are like still in these producing countries um, that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of working on something on this right now, but the, the hippie trail is something that goes from Europe all the way through the Middle East um, out to Asia. And it's like this trail that hippies just inhabited in the seventies and the sixties um, in these hash producing countries. But you still have Instagram uh, people on Instagram, there's, uh, there's like, I'll, I'll shoot you some to put in the, the show tag after this. We'll but get in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's crazy. So they're man. still living that, that like 60s, 70s experience making quality hash and traveling the countries, huh? And, and I wouldn't even say the hippie experience just because it's almost impossible for us to ever get back to that like level of friendliness and purity out there, which is really tragic. Right. Society um, isn't as naive as it was, so acid doesn't have that same magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least not on a large scale. <laughs> it's radically transparent, all the things that we can see. And, like, war has torn these places apart, like, incredibly, like, to incredible amounts. Um, but there, there's still people who are, you know, cooped up or they're, they're 
I don't even know if they're expats or who. Some of them are, are forthcoming about who they are. Some are anonymous. But you see these people doing these dry sift techniques. And like, I don't know if you've seen it, but like the cannabis and the burlap sacks and they're smacking it with sticks to create that dry sift. Right. It's right. crazy. It's a, uh, it's a journey. It's true. Some craftsmanship for sure. Bringing it up from the land, especially in, in some of the locales, it's not where you would imagine cannabis growing. Yet that's some of the origins. And it's like a very dry, arid climate that exactly. uh, still still works. I saw some folks that were drying all their plants along the rooftops. You know, and it just basically, if it rains, you you miss that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't, which is, which yeah. is crazy. You know, like we have a, a I feel like, um, and maybe this is like a, I don't want to go down the whole rabbit hole of like profit and capitalism and all that stuff. But like, maybe that's like a big tie in as to why people care so much or why other ones don't care as much. Um, True. Right. If they're trying to flip it and, and, and really profit off the plant, you can't lose anything. Yeah. But if it's just your way of life and something you're doing on the side, um, you're a lot more humble probably about what nature deals you and just working with the hands you get. Exactly. Like I'm sure nobody in Marrakesh is, is building out insane dry rooms or, uh, you know, cure rooms or anything like that to age their hash or anything. It's, it's like you said, it's like what the fates deal in terms of nature is what's happening. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that hippie trail you said is from, it's kind of going from Europe into India. And originally the cannabis journey started a little bit near India, like in China and Russia area, and then traveled to Europe via the Silk Road. Yep. So then the hippies are just like traveling that back the other direction. <laughs> I'll go wherever this plant came from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I didn't, that's like an insane take. I never even thought of that. That's like a, the inversion of, of kind of what the, the plant traveled to spread apart. And then now what people were taking for hash producing countries. That is interesting. Right. Yeah. And I know that the Silk Road was a big deal. And then like those nomadic societies, like Mongolians and folks that were traveling around all the time, you know, throwing their seeds or something in the ground, realizing it grows. Uh, cannabis is actually one of those first crops that probably led people to be a little more stationary and, and really f- farm or create grains and seeds. And the use of cannabis being so essential there for those cultures, like as a source of food and energy, it's unreal that in a hundred years or 200 years, the whole globe has illegalized the product and, and made it like a narcotic that you can't grow or have. And it's in this 18th century literature for medicine. There's quite a disconnect that I think is related to control, which is probably for another episode. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say we could, we could have a whole panel go about prohibition, but in my mind it's like uh making an entire plant illegal for one compound that it produces out of you know 130 150 whatever the the number is um is almost like making fungus illegal because you can you know either trip on mushrooms or get ergot to make lsd you know what i mean like it's it's a really foolish concept but yeah something naturally occurring yeah and i've got it right here i've got the I, I apologize. I looked away for a second. I was trying to pull up the hippie trail. Um, but it started off in Istanbul and then went through to, to Beirut, Tehran, 
uh, Kabul, and then to Delhi, Kathmandu, um, and then you know all the way down to Goa in the bottom of India, and then to Bangkok. So just this crazy trail of just all of these ecotypes and land races that um, it's like you said they it's these places where you come across it and you're like weed doesn't grow here, but like over generations of time these plants have like made this their home especially like essentially you know yeah yeah that's what that weather those harsh environments you know we're all thankful for that pressure over the generations of plants as it's created that terpene profile that we all like gush about that everyone's like smelling and you know that powerful aroma and flavor really comes from just trying to protect the plant in uh in rough environments Exactly. And that's like a, a, a whole thing. There's a couple people, sorry if I reference LinkedIn a lot. These are just where I feel like a lot of our industry lives, you know, uh, Instagram it's, and LinkedIn. There is a very big part of the industry on LinkedIn. It's awesome how active folks are there and, and how easy it is to connect um, or find people on LinkedIn and Instagram in the cannabis scene. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're a great example. I feel like me and you connected through fat nugs and ILGM. And then, you know, we hadn't been able to sit down and have a face to face, but then you messaged me and we're like, you want to do my podcast? I'm like, of course I'm going to do your podcast. What do you mean? You know? Right. Old hat already. Yeah, exactly. All it took was 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, but the, the, this is something that's like been increasingly important to me or just has been taking up a lot of my mind share when it comes to the future of the industry and everything is you have all of these people who have this old world knowledge and you know they're people who worked with Neville to help proliferate hazes and you know people who uh, were in Florida uh, or Texas I know it's a hotly debated topic uh, for where OG comes from but like you know, um, people right. who, yeah, people who have access to all of these crazy genetics that span way before I was even born, you know, like it, like it's like, it's just something that I feel like is so important. And especially when you have 60% of the market that's proliferated with like cookies crosses essentially. So you have this poly hybridization that's like watering down the gene pool but you have these these like old guard of people who have these genetics that span from these producing countries that have such unique aromas, you know? Yeah, and some of those genetics are found in almost the whole shelf products in other dispensaries, like like some staples like GDP, yep. Durban Poison. You know, like you can find them back in the history. White Widow is back in the lineage of several cultivars. It's common ancestor. Yeah, they, or like the story of the Kim dog. I mean, everything is, it's crazy how connected it is. And I've seen some folks bring, trying to bring back the land race strains, back crossing for traits and trying to, trying to pull those out again. Because we have lost some over time, but it's too bad with the market pressures almost demanding that you only grow the highest THC product you can come up with. That's why we have this proliferation of GSC a GMO. I mean, yeah. some of these strains, they're wonderful. You can't knock GMO. For sure. But when, when you find program. it everywhere, it it's starts to be, much. yeah, it starts to be a little, uh, a little rough. And it's, you know, it's like, uh, when you come across something that's really unique, you're like, Oh my God, this is crazy. This isn't like anything that I've smelled before, you know? 
Yeah, dude, I, I really like that kind of seeking out the new experience. In Vegas, they have to list the top three terpenes on every product. So a discerning customer can say, I don't care what brand that is, what THC percentage it is. I just want to see what's dominant in which terpenes. And doing that, I found some interesting things like a humulene dominant strain, osamine dominant, and you can start to experience these cultivars and associate them with different terpenes a little bit more. Um, it's still hard to draw a direct connection with the entourage effect and kind of the compound of everything, but a strain that's heavier in terpenaline is definitely a euphoric, headier, that Jack Herrera haze feel right. versus a, a head cheese or UK cheese that's bringing a sleepy caryophyllene or myrcene dominance. For sure. So I hope the industry goes that way and starts to look at the different different compounds there and lets THC kind of just it's Take a fine. Back seat. Yeah, I mean THC is definitely important. And it's a prevalent psychoactive cannabinoid, but it's not the one that we all care about the most. It's not the money. And it's I think it's the money's also, in the terps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's also like a you know, a a big thing the we do a consumer insight survey, right? FDDSA, and a huge thing that people care about is effect based right? Like having an understanding of what they're going to feel like. And me personally, I really like focus and creative lending cultivars. And we don't have a real dialed in way to figure out what that's going to be yet. And it's difficult to do. Yeah, it's still a gray area where I think that no one is confident enough, even science itself, to really say that limonene causes X, that linalool is Y. But there are some associations with like antidepressants or analgesics and like different effects that the terpenes have. But the studies, I think, still have decades to go before we can truly map things like that. I totally agree. I can, I can appreciate that the consumer, especially maybe a newer one, would be trying to pull cultivars for effects. Mm. But I also see a little bit of like snake oily, like spinning it to say oh this is for headaches mm -hmm. but this one is for when your your you know your stomach hurts <laughs> right. and it's just like ah can you both really speak would probably to yeah both would probably help or like what's the study for the headaches um but i i think it's helpful anyways to try to help consumers get, wrap their head around it right educate mm -hmm. them on what they could consume for outside of just relaxing or you know, something like that. We had um, Dan Whitmer's on an earlier episode, who's a certified ganjier, has a marketing company. And, you know, his perspective was really that even though folks are consuming for what they think may be recreational or just because they like it, there's probably a therapeutic reason that it's actually treating. There's All something there, is maybe. Cannabis. Yeah, even if it's something subtle or something just like it's improving mood then that's, that's the therapy that you're getting or the medicinal effect that's coming. And I totally agree with that sentiment. I, uh, I've like entered into my like moderation phase where I'm like a little more checking as to my relationship with the plant and everything. Um, but I still am of the firm belief that all use is, is medicinal use just because you're treating something at the end of the day, whether it's stress, whether it's a headache, whether it's your back pain, uh, whatever it is. 
Right. Dude, I love that you brought up the M word. This is a word that the cannabis industry does not want to address because it means smoking less, which is less profit. It's taboo. It's taboo. And that's where we have a problem it, because the, uh, the consumption lifestyle without moderation is, is not a problem by itself. But over time, over time there, are, there can be issues. And even if you're a high-functioning stoner and you can really get things done, you can start having trouble with sleep. You can start feeling anxious without cannabis, uh, where maybe you didn't even have anxiety before. There's some things that can come from just blasting the endocannabinoid system with like super-powered products. And I can, you know, once again, anecdotal, but I can speak to that from the years of 2015 to 2020, where I definitely overloaded the hell out of my endocannabinoid system. And I think, you know, it's a person by person basis, right? Like I think something that like what you just touched on is very much a taboo subject. I feel like in our industry, because we're so focused on having people understand that this is a beneficial plant that we don't want to dip our toe into the negative effect end of things for fear that it's going to hurt the movement which i totally yeah, almost respect reverse the direction exactly because right. it's something that people can latch on to and be like this is why it was illegal in the first place but like you know people have cirrhosis in their livers from drinking <laughs> exactly you know the vodka the vodka companies say you know drink responsibly but i don't know that cannabis companies often include a yeah a, con- a consumption note and, and, you know, there's, of course, like, don't operate heavy machinery and things like that. But I don't think that's speaking to the same message. <laughs> yeah, that is. Maybe it'll come kind of with the maturity of the industry as it grows more and as people dabble, like things like tolerance breaks or moderation and things will start to become a little more common. Unfortunately, I think that the pop culture vibes are just that, you know, smoking all day, every day is cool, man. And everything's fine. And I... I appreciate those folks, and I I, I kind of am that person at heart. But I'm trying to moderate and trying to find a, like a more uh, respectful relationship so that relationship. it's not driving right. And yeah, I think totally. that it's actually helped a little bit in pushing back my consumption. I found that I get more effects. The smaller amount is more powerful, or I'm kind of left in a very like elated state where maybe before I couldn't really you couldn't really reach that or get the full potential yeah and you know there's some you know that that's like an interesting point that if you've ever listened to the podcast uh he always has on breeders and, and different people to talk about but like ubiquitous across breeders there's there's just some cannabis that like hits a ceiling once you get a certain high once you get high enough from that and then there's chem dogs, which which have no ceilings, and <laughs> they just go, you know, and go. <laughs> they go until you put it down, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm a big fan of having a little go a long way, just because, like you said, I'm trying to be more intentional with my usage. Um, but I'm also a culture kid, so like you said, right? Like you have that like internal beast within you who's like, I toke. <laughs> like, yeah, let's roll up, man. We just exactly. woke up. <laughs> exactly. Where like you, you almost feel bad if you tap out or something like that, you know, but like 
the reality yeah. of it is like you need to just establish whatever your best practices are with this plant and like that's going to vary wildly from person to person but i'm in a place right now where i'm trying to understand my relationship with it a little bit better yeah and i wonder if over time we'll see some of these lower thc strains coming more into the scene again or cbd strains being brought into the extract world you know so that you can take a dab that's not 97 percent thc you know you could find something that's going to be a little more balanced or still bring that entourage effect of terpenes and cbd and everything else without hitting it as hard but it's a it's a weird conversation to have man because of the industry push and kind of the perception of of consuming and the stigma that we're trying to get rid of i think you make a good point that it's almost pumping the brakes to talk about moderation <laughs> exactly whereas like we've been hitting you know gas we've been hitting the gas like crazy in terms of just you know not to make a pun out of it but like crazy going trying to get this push to have weed be normalized and right. it's, it's it's a it's a tough balance to strike and like maybe we get to the point where everything's normal and then we start addressing the bad stuff but i don't think that's the right way to go yeah unfortunately there's going to be some fallen folks because we do it that way you know yeah. they're going to fall into the, the the very very habitual use uh, yeah. for one reason or another but i see that that poster behind you the devil's harvest uh this the smoke of hell i've got a poster up here the the reefer madness yep, it says uh, it. marijuana the enemy of the youth <laughs> i want to say yeah so my mine is reefer madness and it's adults only the sweet pill that makes life bitter Women cry for it. Men die for it. Drug oh, crazed abandon. Yeah, this one says drug crazed abandon. What living hell was like. Innocent youth, victims of marijuana. Men will fight for it. A menace worse than death. And it's... You worse know, than death? Worse than death. Wow. Which, <laughs> you know, that must mean death is sweet. You know? <laughs> it's brutal. So, I mean, that we've come a long way from those stigmas of the, like, propaganda times. And, you know, we're able to have these kind of conversations on, a, on the podcast and, and talk shop. Absolutely. So, I think that that stigma is kind of removed, but it's still, like, imprinted on, like, the zeitgeist, on the greater society. Sort of lingering there on the edges of perception. Exactly. And, like, you know the cultural ethos that kind of permeates like even when you eradicate something that ethos still lives on past what the education calls for right so you know the war on drugs we have a huge cultural awakening to people understanding that this was a terrible way to invest our time money and energy and it's only disproportionately affected people who have gotten screwed by america and you know maybe people need some weeds to relax or maybe they need some bombs to help with their, their pain or it's all about relationships with drugs. That's been, you know, kind of from, you know, I won't expound out on my drug policy, but I do think it's more about <laughs> consumer education than it is about making things illegal or inaccessible because then you have the whole fentanyl crisis going on right now. And that's happening, you know, across different drug classes. That's not just opioids, you know? Yeah. It's, that's really scary, man. Extremely. Uh, yeah. And I've heard I'm things about I'm thankful that I wasn't in, deep in the scene when fentanyl was a thing. 
it wasn't Ditto. a worry when I was kind of bouncing around and doing doing the things. Uh, yeah, dude, I completely <laughs> understand. And now you've got to be strapped with a test kit and like highly urge everyone listening, if you consume any types of drugs outside of cannabis, I've heard of the fentanyl lace weed, never have like come to contact or know of anybody who's who's seen that. I don't know the merit that that exists, but... Uh, anything else, man, it could be lingering. Yeah, exactly. And And like, you know, I... I think drugs are just like our relationship as Americans with drugs need to change um, because it's not this evil tool. And you'll see it, right? California, Oregon, like these places who are radically changing their drug policy towards psychedelics, it's making a huge difference with kind of our relationship with it. But like for the most part, people still think if you take LSD, you're going to jump out of a window thinking you can fly. And like, that's not the complete reality of things. You know, I think. Right. You will pull up that anchor of sanity a little bit. But for most folks, it settles back down a few feet over. Exactly. It's not that big of a trip. And you need to open your doors of perception sometimes. I just think we have taken a really extreme and harsh approach to, to drug policy in the U.S. And maybe cannabis is the first layer of that onion that we peel back. Um, and maybe it stays there. I don't know where we go with this, but I do think this is helping change people's minds about drugs and their perception of drugs, which is huge. Yeah, yeah, and just having the conversation and encouraging the like education and kind of understanding across the board is the best we can do for now because it, I don't think anything's going to change with the industry racing for the finish line and every country seeing that that tax revenue. It starts to become a, just a conversation of economics rather than like, like socio-spiritual. <laughs> exactly, and that's like a, I had this discussion with someone the other week where I essentially was, I, I said, you know, I'd be down if we just legalized cannabis medicinally across the country and, you know, kind of left the rec thing up to the states and however they want to deal with it, uh, which, you know, I feel like a lot of people won't like that. But I do think that uh, a lot of quality and a lot of things that make cannabis such a great plant get lost whenever it becomes a race to commodification. People are trying to get the lowest ticket on a pound. It's all about moving biomass, getting distillate out to the market slapping different pretty colors on packaging so that you can have a brand that resonates with somebody who is a hiker or something else. You know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't, it's not the same. Yep. Uh, that's the, that's the capitalism grind that's, that's ongoing right now. Exactly. It's rough, man. And like, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the, the future of cannabis, which like, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because I think there's a whole lot of research that's going to be done on the medicinal end and kind of, we just had a cannabis research bill that got passed in December. I think that that's going to do wonders. We just had a veterans bill that just got passed to where they're going to try and lighten things up for the VA. I think we're going to get a lot of dope insights from that. I think we're going to get a lot of actionable things that people can start making products that aren't just you know, I love joints. I love joints. Joints are my favorite method of consumption. But like, we're going to move beyond that into something where people will have an understanding of a standardized effect, uh, which I think is going to be huge for getting like the general buy-in of society. Yeah, dude, definitely. And starting to change that perception that cannabis is not a utility or a commodity. It's an experience. It's a narrative. You don't just read a book. You read a sci-fi, you read fantasy, you don't like books, you read nonfiction. You know, there's there's more there's to nuance. want in there, yeah, than just 
having it at the lowest price. And I mean, it's in some brackets, that's the goal. Or in some lifestyles, that may be the goal too. And I think that there's levels of education in all of those, uh, in all those approaches though. I totally agree. That's like a, something that I feel like permeates throughout our industry is like everyone saying like education, like an educated consumer is key. Um, a lot of consumers don't even care what they're getting. They still have the mindset of what we had when we were smoking back in 2012 of like, it's weed. I just want weed that works, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I think it's only, it only comes with like time in the industry or around the plant and with the product that you even entertain those thoughts or those. Exactly. Those Which is why people care so much about effect-based marketing, right? It's because they don't, even want to care about the science of cannabis. That's only for nerds like us who like are really interested in what that whole weaving of effects is and kind of what that, that science is that creates what we experience. Some people just really want to go and be like, I miss having a giggly experience in high school. Let me buy these Chiba Chews that'll make me giggle or whatever it is. Yeah, you know? or I need to sleep, so I need a more something more sedative. Exactly. And maybe that'll come in whenever we start saying, you know, think of CBN as your more narcotic end of things or maybe that'll be it more cannabinoid experience and then like we'll try to trojan horse terps in there somehow but it's a it's a I'll rough be in that horse <laughs> you're a big terp guy which I, I respect and i appreciate i need to get some some game spit from you about terps because oh i definitely love that nuance and i i give all the credit to the las vegas market for kind of training me to be able to see what was tested and then taste and experience what's probably in the jar that being said it's aged and it's probably different right but it's close <laughs> what have you uh what's been your experience with the bud tenders in, in vegas has it been like a very uh are they educated are they knowledgeable or if you say give me a diversified give me five of the most diverse terps that you have give me like five eighth jars of those are they going to be like oh i've got like good in mind i've got something that i'm thinking of Right. Ideally, but I think that it's a little hit or miss. Sometimes I've found those bud tenders that have done the work or have the previous relationship with the plant that they can talk shop or that they're really aware of their products. But then almost like the consumers that would just like to skip that nuance, there are bud tenders that this is their their job. Yeah, it's a J-O-B. It's like, a, you know, I come yeah. here and I get paid and I leave. <laughs> I get it. So I think that it's hard to put the onus on bud tenders as the educators, mm -hmm. but they are right on the front lines. And uh, it's, there's a lot they could do to upsell or start to explain connoisseurship or steer consumers right. And I feel like that is a whole economics game in and of itself, right? Where it's like, if you, it's like efficiency wages, right? If you've ever heard of that economic theory, where it's like, if you pay above market rate for something, you will have above market rate people who are, explaining these concepts and I think bud tenders get like the short end of the stick a lot of times even though they are the first line of defense and they will be the people who can make or break a customer's experience yeah if any listeners out there are bud tenders man keep fighting that good fight for real we need you on the front lines <laughs> you guys are awesome yeah, definitely I think that the bud tenders are almost like the trimmers in the cultivation world in that you're you're trying to start in the industry or maybe you specialize in that customer service or that experience management it's a good way to get your foot in the door to kind of understand the market and then the catch is the rest of the industry just expects you to also educate 
thousands of consumers. Yeah, you just have to have shoulders like Atlas if you're a uh, if you're a bud yes. tender, which is you're holding the world. Yeah, it's a rough expectation to hold on people, but we respect all of you guys for doing what you do. Well, Nigel, man, this has been an awesome conversation. I think that uh, we could keep going on for hours here. I re- want to thank you for jumping on the show, and uh, we'll definitely get you scheduled for a, a visit again. Yeah, Where can our please. listeners find your projects and your yeah, so uh, what I'm currently working on, uh, I've got a smellproof bra- uh, bag brand that I'm working on right now called Loud Packs. Um, I've got a uh, marketing agency that I'm running right now called Industry Marketing. Um, we're working on the website for that. So pretty much if, if you want to get at me on socials, it's Nigel underscore D's, D-E-E-Z. And if you want to get at me at LinkedIn, it's Nigel Despinas. Uh, it'll say I'm an industry copywriter on it. Don't hesitate to reach out, DM me, message me, whatever, interact with me. I love our industry and I love talking to people. Uh, But yeah, Rob, I appreciate you, man. This has been an awesome experience. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show and our range of services, visit apt113.com. We offer cannabis operations consulting, agile product management for software development, and certified Gangier services. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.